the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today we'll share our um, interview of the week with David Riffle, mentoring warriors coming alongside young men 18 to 30. And we'll share a segment from our conversation yesterday that we didn't air. So looking forward to sharing that with you. We'll also take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. But first the not-so-light side of the news. Portland's mayoral contenders delivered competing visions for the city, currently consumed by turmoil, as the national news media reminds us often. In their first televised debate, that was last night, Mayor Ted Wheeler defended his record. He said he's prioritizing helping downtown Portland businesses and insisted that he can end violent demonstrations. He's just, you know, taking his time. With his challenger, Sarah Ayanarone, she said that she's going to bring new voices to the table and views police violence, not that of protesters, as the most serious problem. Now, for downtown business owners, uh, she might have a, a debate on her hands. Well, tumultuous protests, the coronavirus pandemic, a battered local economy all loomed large as the incumbent and Ayanarone attempted to confront them with responses capped at no more than a minute. Uh, Fending off criticism on his leadership and addressing homelessness, policing and other city issues. Mayor Wheeler, he focused on the need to halt the unrest that's erupted during months of racial justice demonstrations and beyond and bring a needed boost to the downtown area so that people come back, he said, to the community, that people see that we're open, see that we're vibrant, see that we're creative and innovative and that Portland can lead again, end quote. Leonarone, by contrast, promised fresh perspectives to tackle old and new problems that she said Wheeler has proven unable to solve. She went on to say Portland's been off track for too long. And in fact, many people felt like we were off track prior to these current crises. Well, the hour long back and forth sponsored by the Oregonian and KGW unfolded in a week that injected new uncertainties into the November 3rd race. And just a week before the ballots began arriving to voters mailboxes. In the state of Oregon, we have a clear choice. Uh, how far left do you want to go? Liana Rohn recently seen with her Che Guevara and Marx and other uh, dictators skirt on and identifying herself as uh, Antifa or Mayor Wheeler, who's been unwilling up to this uh, unwilling rather up to this point to address the violence in the downtown Portland area, but has a lot of good rhetoric about that. Now, those are our choices for the city of Portland. So vote wisely. Meanwhile, White House physician Dr. Sean Conley sent out a memorandum on Thursday stating that President Trump will be able to return to public engagements this weekend, uh, noting that it will be 10 days since the president was first diagnosed with the novel coronavirus. The doctor anticipates that the president can return to his usual schedule by tomorrow. Well, Conley said that uh, the president has responded extremely well to treatment, said there is no sign of adverse therapeutic effects. Today, the president has completed his course of therapy for COVID-19 as prescribed by his team of physicians. 
Uh, Saturday will be day 10 since Thursday's diagnosis. And based on the trajectory of advanced diagnostics the team has been conducting, I fully anticipate, the doctor said, the president's safe return to public engagements at that time. Well, hours earlier, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she teased a constitutional measure to potentially remove the president from office following questions about his health as he recovers from the coronavirus. Pelosi said yesterday, tomorrow, meaning today, by the way, tomorrow, come here tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment. Well, the president and First Lady Melania Trump announced they tested positive for COVID-19 early on Friday, just before 1 o'clock a.m., although the actual timeline of his diagnosis has been disputed. The Centers for Disease Control say that uh, people with mild to moderate COVID-19 remain infectious no longer than 10 days after symptom onset. People with more severe symptoms can remain infectious for longer. White House officials say the president started exhibiting symptoms about a week ago. uh, The president acknowledged earlier he was very sick last week when he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center. He highlighted in a new video that uh, while hospitalized, he took this medicine and it was incredible. He told uh, Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business on Thursday morning that he didn't think he was contagious at all anymore. Well, still, the Commission on Presidential Debates, they moved uh, next week's debate to a virtual setting. The president said that he would not participate in a virtual debate, particularly because he wasn't informed before the public announcement was made. The commission changed the debate style, and that um, that's not acceptable, he said. Um, The president added that he expects to beat Democrat nominee Joe Biden in the second debate also, assuming that he beat him in the first. I'm not going to do a virtual debate, he went on to say. I'm not going to waste my time at a virtual debate. Well, meanwhile, Stephen Miller, who is the president's advisor, announced that um, he tested positive for coronavirus on Tuesday following the White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, her announcement that she had contracted the virus on Monday. Other White House staff who have tested positive for COVID-19 at this point include senior advisor Hope Hicks, director of Oval Office Operations Nick Luna, Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien, also tested positive for COVID-19. Well, former counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, has also tested positive. Former New York, uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who participated in uh, debate prep with the president recently, did too and was admitted to the hospital over the weekend. Others who have been in contact with the White House, uh, who've since been tested uh, positive, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, Notre Dame President Reverend John Jenkins, and Harvest Christian Fellowship Pastor Greg Laurie. More than 30 staffers, allies of the administration, senators and journalists have now tested positive for COVID. Many of them attended a Rose Garden ceremony to announce Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court last Saturday. Now, it's not clear if that is precisely where they contracted uh, the virus, but uh, they were at least uh, known to have been in that one place. Well, nearly 50,000 voters in Franklin County, Ohio's most populous county, received incorrect absentee ballots in the mail. That's according to elections officials announcing earlier today, revealing a major glitch that appeared to affect one in five ballots that county had sent out so far. Now, officials promised to have new ballots mailed to the 49,669 voters who received the wrong ones within three days. We want to make it clear that every voter who received an inaccurate ballot will receive a corrected ballot. The 
Gord said in a news release, according to the Columbus Dispatch. Well, a list of voters who got the wrong ballot will be posted on the Franklin County Board of Elections website so people can check. But voters affected can wait for their new ballot or show up at the County Board of Elections during early voting hours to cast an in-person absentee ballot. Now, this sounds very confusing to me. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose's uh, office has directed the board to write a letter explaining the error along with the replacement ballots. No vote will be counted twice. Every voter will receive an accurate ballot and that ballot will be counted. That's according to the elections director, Ed Leonard. If a voter sends in both the replacement ballot and the original faulty ballot, only the replacement will be counted. If a voter only sends the original ballot, the faulty ballot, only their votes in races that were eligible to vote will be counted. Well, the chaos ensued after an unknown person changed the setting on a device that stuffs absentee ballots into envelopes. The mistake occurred Saturday afternoon, is thought to have been an accident. What could possibly go wrong in this upcoming election? Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Friday introduced a bill to establish a commission that would rule on the president's fitness for office. Now, the bill, which she introduced along with Congressman Jamie Raskin, would form a congressionally appointed body called the Commission on Presidential Capacity to Discharge the Powers and Duties of Office, which would serve as the body and process called for in the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. That's according to the offices of Pelosi and Raskin in a statement. Well, on Thursday, she expressed doubts about the president's health after his coronavirus diagnosis and announced that over the next day, she would uh, discuss the constitutional measure that allows the vice president to take over if the president becomes incapacitated. The measure is meant to enable Congress to help ensure effective and uninterrupted leadership regarding the presidency. Well, the speaker stressed on Friday that she is unaware of Trump's current mental fitness but said some medical professionals have cautioned that certain drugs could alter a person's state of mind. Trump has been prescribed several drugs since he tested positive for the coronavirus last week. She's implying that those drugs have undermined his capacity to lead. She went on to say, with a straight face, this is not about President Trump. Uh, He will face the judgment of voters, but he shows the need to create a process for future presidents, Pelosi said. So she's not thinking at all about President Trump, his coronavirus or the drugs that he's taking. She's thinking about Joe Biden because he's a future president in her mind. Well, we have to give some comfort to people that there is a way to do this. The speaker continued based on a medical decision, again, with the full involvement of the vice president. So Nancy Pelosi looking ahead. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few moments to continue looking at the day's news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll take a look at some of the lighter side of the news and we'll share my conversation in its entirety with David Riffle, mentoring warriors coming alongside young men 18 to 30. President Trump berated Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden during an exclusive interview with Hannity on Thursday night after the former vice president refused yet again to say whether he'd support efforts to expand the Supreme Court. He announced earlier today that he would do that after the election. Earlier in the day, Biden said at the campaign stop in Phoenix that he would reveal his position on court packing then. I think what he said, President Trump went on to say, was so disrespectful to the process and to the people. But what that means really is that he's going to do it, because obviously that means 100 percent 
That's what they're going to do, referring to the um, Democrat ticket. Meanwhile, Republican lawmakers have vowed to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett in the to the Supreme Court before November 3rd. Barrett was nominated to fill a vacancy created when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in September. Uh, President Trump has warned that Democrats would move to pack the court with progressive justices if they take control of the Senate next year. The president told Hannity that if Biden were uh, victorious, he won't be president for three months before his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, takes over control. She's the most liberal person in the Senate, and that is actually factually true. She's not a socialist. She's a step beyond socialism, the president said. Well, President Trump suggested that he may hold weekend rallies in Florida and Pennsylvania after receiving the green light from his doctor. And the president can return to public engagements this weekend, the White House physician says. Tucker Carlson says the vice presidential debate show Democrats would pack the court in the name of diversity. And Trump says he won't participate in a virtual debate after the um, uh, debate panel announced changes without consulting either campaign. Not going to waste my time, he said. Mark Levin um, uh, says that Democrats are is accusing Democrats of seeking a monopoly of power over the government. And Sean Hannity says Democrats are attempting the biggest power grab in history. That is, of course, assuming uh, the notion of packing the court and getting rid of the filibuster. Well, political progressives, including the freshman squad lawmakers, unveiled their vision for America under a Biden-Harris administration on Thursday, seeking to draw voters to the Democrats' ticket and provide a roadmap on how to push Joe Biden leftward. The Working Families Party People's Charter calls for free public health, universal child care, millions of green jobs, canceling student loans, a $15 minimum wage, and shifting money away from police departments and toward investments in schools and communities. One of the plan's backers, Representative Ro Kahana of uh, California, said the agenda would be the legislative blueprint for what progressives in the House would push for during a Biden-Harris administration. The aim is a clear agenda that progressives in the House will advance Focuses on these big items, Kahana went on to say, we will push for Medicare for all during the pandemic. We will push for the creation of millions of good jobs in communities left behind. We will advance a bold vision to tackle climate change and have a livable planet, which is the aspiration of the Green New Deal. I expect at least 80 of the 100 uh, House Democrats to uh, support the basic principles of this agenda, end quote. Well, the release of the ambitious plan followed Wednesday's vice presidential debate, where Senator Kamala Harris, seen by the left as a lifeline into a Biden administration, distanced herself from progressive priorities, including the Green New Deal, which she uh, once co-sponsored. In other developments, uh, former Vice President Biden says that he doesn't support the Green New Deal, but his campaign website calls it a crucial framework. Which is it? Not entirely clear. Well, AOC responded after Biden said the Green New Deal is not for my plan during a debate. And Bernie Sanders plans to mobilize the left to launch an aggressive agenda uh, push the day after Biden is elected. So that shift leftward will begin um, immediately and it will be very aggressive. Well, Republicans were baffled by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's uh, suggestion on Thursday that she might introduce a bill allowing a body appointed by Congress to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump from office as he recovers from the novel coronavirus. The 25th Amendment allows for the vice president to become acting president if the president is deemed unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Currently, the vice president and cabinet can invoke that amendment. Tomorrow, by the way, she went on to say we're going to talk about it with well, Pelosi. And that was yesterday. She was referring to a bill she unveiled with Representative Jamie Raskin. Still, Pelosi would have uh, to convince Senate Republicans to go along with it. Plus, Vice President Mike Pence would also have to sign the declaration, which would be 
highly unlikely. Now, she said that this is not for this administration. This is for future administrations. And some are speculating she's referring to Joe Biden. I won't go into much detail, but uh, if there is evidence of dementia, uh, that Joe Biden would be the subject of this 25th Amendment. Now, that's speculative, but I think it uh, bears some consideration. Meanwhile, Meadows has slammed Pelosi's suggestion that steroids are influencing the president's judgment, and vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris will likely be in the spotlight at the, came, uh, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. The media is blaming Donald Trump for inciting a militia group alleged to, the, uh, to have been plotting a kidnapping of the governor, Whitmer, and the debate moderator Steve Scully is raising eyebrows with a tweet asking Scarmucci, should I respond to Trump? Now, Steve Scully apparently once uh, was an intern for Biden and worked for another Democrat as well, so his objective objectivity is being called into question. A Texas mayoral candidate has been arrested for mail-in ballot fraud and a booby-trapped political sign slices a Michigan township worker's fingers. Apparently, they got tired of having the signs removed, so they booby-trapped it. Well, the Justice Department is suing Yale University over its admissions practices, and the CEO of crypto is showing the door to workers who disagree with the company's apolitical mission. Well, the next debate is uncertain as the debate commission is making last minute changes. The commission unilaterally made the debate virtual. Trump wasted no time responding, saying, no, he doesn't plan to participate in that. That's not what debating is all about. Senator Ted Cruz also came to Trump's defense, uh, saying, I think that they're uh, very happy for Joe not to leave his basement for another minute between now and the election day. And if the commission sticks to uh, Uh, We're uh, going to do it virtually. I think the president is right to say I'm not going to participate in that charade. Hugh Hewitt, commenting on the same, said that the Never Trump Debate Commission sucker punch Team Trump is shocking. It has no standing in law. It is supposed to be a halfway house for the parties to meet in and agree on debate formats. It's um, diseased and drunk on power and obviously anti-real Donald Trump. Senator Tom Cotton on uh, the subject Uh, said, I have to say I'm shocked that the debate commission didn't even consult with President Trump's campaign before making this radical change. I mean, they consult with the campaigns when they talk about the height of the podiums, uh, the size of the notepads that will be on the podiums and other issues. Well, Kamala Harris is being fact-checked following the vice presidential debate. In the debate on Wednesday night, she stated the American people know that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. But Biden and Harris have both repeatedly expressed support for getting rid of fracking. Biden has said that there would be no place in his administration for fossil fuels in his administration, and he would make sure they are eliminated. Biden also is on video saying, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuels. Harris, on the other hand, said during a CNN town hall that there's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. From the Federalist, she also lied frequently, frequently and perhaps in ways that were too easily caught. She lied about Abraham Lincoln. She repeated the false Charlottesville hoax, and she falsely claimed that Trump called COVID a hoax. She tried to defend Biden on fracking, but did so in a way that reminded voters of how he's been all over the map on ways he zealously uh, seeks to ban fracking or uh, definitively uh, does not want to. Uh, Town Hall points out that the Russian bounties story that the left tried to weaponize against Trump as evidence he was a bad commander in chief was tossed around. It's not corroborated. Well, violent protests in Wisconsin include attacks on private residences following a court ruling that found an officer use uh, of weapon was justified. Hundreds of people marched on Wednesday night after Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm announced suspended officer Joseph Minas or Minsa. 
uh, will not face charges in the February fatal shooting of Alvin Cole, 17, outside Mayfair Mall. Police said around 8.40 p.m., projectiles, including glass bottles, large rocks and bricks, were thrown at law enforcement. Uh, and the police declared an unlawful assembly, directed them to disperse. The group proceeded westward, where members of the group broke the windows of several residences and businesses. Julio Rosas has the details on Town Hall if you'd like to go into those details. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick turn in just a few moments and take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. So I hope you'll join us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we're going to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. And to help me do that, James Blend joins me from, well, his abode. Hey, James, how you doing? I'm doing all right. It's Friday. Never a bad thing. That's true. We've lived through a couple of debates this past week, the vice presidential debate. We had the mayoral debate in the Portland area. I think people are pretty uh, ready for a weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly at least one local channel covered the Washington gubernatorial debate, too. So if debating is your thing, you, you had your choice this week. Absolutely. Well, there's a website that's offering a chance to uh, deal with what they're calling election stress disorder and give you a chance to live under a rock during election week. Now, I don't know. I'm thinking this, <laughs> this might sound like a good idea. Well, it's an accommodation booking website, and it's offering weary voters an escape from election stress disorder with the opportunity to live under a rock for the week of the election. Hotels.com uh, said the November 2nd through 7th stay in a man-made cave 50 feet below ground in New Mexico will be available to book on its website on a first-come, first-served basis 9 a.m. this morning. The website said the opportunity is perfect for those who are experiencing election stress disorder. By the way, it's a real thing. The five-night stay costs the, an Abraham Lincoln-inspired $5 per night. After you've cast your ballot, you can check out the news feed negatively and check in to a or negativity and check in to a man-made cave built 50 feet below ground. Hotels.com said it's going to also offer a 20% discount on selected properties with rock in the name using the coupon code under a rock starting this morning. Political fatigue is real regardless of the year or the election, says the vice president of Hotels.com. That's Josh Belkin. We're transforming an age old idiom into a bookable experience so individuals can relax, recharge and recover because who knows what else 2020 has in store for us all. I don't know, James, this sounds like a pretty good idea, living under a rock for the week of the election. I certainly don't mind the idea. I might stay there a couple of extra weeks, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, maybe <laughs> maybe till lockdowns are eased, uh, masks. I mean, you know, all, the, all these different things, uh, I really wouldn't mind. Well, that's what I was thinking. I'm not sure I would want to just uh, have it for a week. I might want to stay much longer, depending on what happens. I mean, it, it occurs to me, you know, something like, you know, the science fiction concept of uh, like freezing yourself in time, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, what is it that they do? Uh, cryogenically frozen. Mm-hmm. It's like I'll cryogenically frozen until they flatten the curve. And then, what do you mean? It's 2024. <laughs> oh, don't even joke about it. Well, aggressive raccoons are harassing White House reporters um, and there's pretty wild video to uh actually back that up. It's kind of funny. Um, it seems um, it seems that a gang of wily raccoons has taken up residence on the White House lawn, and at least one sneaked up on a TV reporter early on Wednesday. 
Well, at least you can argue that they're wearing masks. They are raccoons after all. Well, CNN's Joe Johns was on camera shooting a live shot for the uh, for New Day when a raccoon attempted to creep into the frame. In response, he threw an object at the critter and hollered, get, <laughs> as he tried to salvage his footage. He went on to say in a way that I probably would not have uh, communicated that the raccoons um, keep getting in his uh, in his frame. He exclaimed in a clip as he repeatedly turned away from the camera to check for further advances. Um, that's the second time these things have been approaching. Well, he explained later that no animals were harmed in the, the uh, taping of the broadcast when he threw something at the <laughs> The the vermin. He also offered a theory on why the White House raccoons have been so um, friendly lately. He says, I think they're attracted to the lights. Hmm. Well, it seems that raccoons have been a problem for reporters outside the White House for at least a week. Paula Reed on CBS News said a raccoon uh, attacked multiple news crews on the North Lawn in September and posted photos on Twitter showing few rummaging around a media tent. Um, Another Uh, went on to say that uh, this has become something of a regular thing. Parks and Recreation, which was oddly enough overrun by menacing raccoons, is aware of the problem. Uh, It's also been tweeted that federal authorities had set traps for the raccoons using marshmallows as bait. So far, that hasn't really worked, although perhaps the marshmallows are the uh, reporters themselves and the uh, raccoons just find them irresistible. I'm not sure what uh, what I would do if being approached by raccoons while trying to do a show like some of these reporters. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I, I, I They would drive me nuts. You would <laughs> shut down. You yeah, would curl I'd probably. Up in a ball. Uh, I believe the fetal position is the term that comes to mind there. But not on the ground, because that's where the raccoons are. I'd have to it, find oh, some no, no, elevated no, no. platform. You'd be an elevated, I mean, it, it would be some sort of weird yoga thing, I guess, but uh, uh, I don't know how you do an elevated fetal position, but uh, maybe on a table. I'd find a way. Maybe a I table? would find a way. <laughs> well, it's not surprising that the debate between the vice presidential nominees would uh, result in a Halloween store selling debate fly wigs, or maybe fly debate wigs might be another way of putting it, inspired by the bug on Mike Pence's head during the vice presidential debate. An online shop has flown to, to stock a bug-bedecked white wig. It's a rather cheeky costume, probably won't fly with Pence and his um, campaign team. But just in time for Halloween, an online shop is selling a bug-bedecked white wig inspired by the now viral fly that landed on Vice President Mike Pence's hair during the vice presidential debate on Wednesday night. As he, um, the, the vice president discussed justice for Breonna Taylor, the pesky insect flew onto the vice president's head and remained fixed for around two minutes, setting off critics and comments alike. Now, of course, it's his hair. He doesn't feel it. He doesn't know that it's there. Well, now shoppers bugged by the politician or simply delighted by the viral moment will surely be amused by Three Wishes' new debate flywig currently in stock and retailing for $49.95. The silver hairpiece with an attractive oversized faux fly was reportedly first made available on Thursday morning. They were quick on the draw. According to the product page, customers are encouraged to look fly and steal the spotlight at your next party with the debate fly wig, perfect for when being a fly on the wall just won't do. And while a flag lapel pin is included with the purchase, a suit and plexiglass divider are not. Naturally, social media users are buzzing about the Halloween hairpiece with one Twitter user declaring that the wig was the costume for All Hallows Eve. 
yeah, it, it was inevitable that that would garner much more attention than it deserved. But I guess you just uh, you it, just smile. It's, it's the uh, ADD nature of America. You have a mostly uh, well-behaved debate and what catches people's attention. Ooh, fly. <laughs> it's like squirrel or rather raccoon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the ultimate distraction. And the fact is, two days later, very few people are talking about the debate, but they're still talking about that fly. Yeah. The Biden campaign started selling fly swatters within minutes of that viral moment. <laughs> they sold out overnight when the fly landed on the vice president's head during the debate, stayed there for nearly two minutes. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden jumped on the viral moment. Well, the truth is he didn't. He was probably napping, but someone in his campaign did. Within minutes, the Biden campaign was selling fly swatters branded with the Biden-Harris logo. They sold out overnight. Nearly 35,000 units have been sold, according to the Biden campaign. They first capitalized on the fly moment for making a meme out of it with Biden's account uh, tweeting a photo of the former vice president with a fly swatter. Uh, Pitch in five dollars to help this campaign fly. The tweet read Biden's account then uh, tweeted a link to flywillvote.com. The website redirects users to IWillVote.com, a voter registration site paid for by the Democratic National Committee, where people can check if they are registered, request a mail-in ballot, and learn more about voting. Biden's page then advertised the blue fly swatters listed at $10 in the Biden campaign store. The swatters featured the phrase, truth over flies. Now, the response was celebrated by some observers and apparently a very successful campaign. We're going to take a break here in just a a moment. I want to remind you that in the second hour of today's program, I'm going to share the full-length conversation I had with David Riffle. He's the author of Mentoring Warriors, Coming Alongside Young Men 80 to 30. That's our interview of the week. We're going to take a quick break. James will be back with me in a few moments to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at the lighter side of the news. James Blend has joined me for just that purpose. You know, we were talking earlier about the fly that made uh, made the news. A Frenchman in France, of course, made the news as well. He blew up part of his house trying to chase down a fly. Well, he generated quite a buzz. This elderly octogenarian Frenchman blew up part of his house. The 82-year-old was sitting down to dinner on Friday evening last in um his French village, when the bug came buzzing, according to local outlets. So he started swatting at it with an electric racket. It's designed to kill insects. But he didn't realize that a gas canister was leaking in his home. Oh. Well, you can imagine the rest. The reaction between the racket and the gas sparked an explosion, destroying the kitchen and part of the roof of his home. Fortunately, the octogenarian sustained only slight burns to his hand. He stayed at a local campsite while his family made repairs to his house. Uh, According to the local news as well, the fate of the fly, however, is not known. It could, in fact, have been the very fly that flew across oceans to um, attend the vice presidential debate, although it's doubtful. It would be the Charles Lindbergh of flies. (laughs) It certainly would be. Well, a Tennessee boy is uh, being honored by Guinness World Records. Now, you and I talk about Guinness quite a bit and why on earth people do what they do. But this one, it's a different story. He uh, earned the Guinness World Record for an unusual accomplishment, achieving nuclear fusion just hours before his 13th birthday. Nuclear fusion. Fusion. Jackson Oswalt is now 15 of Memphis. He was dubbed a genius as the world's youngest person to achieve nuclear fusion after officials verified that he built his own nuclear fusion reactor at his family's home and successfully used it in the final hours of his 12th year. 
Uh, it's been uh, I've been able to use electricity to accelerate two atoms um, together, so they fuse into an atom of helium three and also release a neutron, which can be used to heat up water and turn a steam engine, which in turn produces electricity. He said, "I could barely say it, let alone uh, him." Uh, thinking it. Well, Guinness said Oswald's reactor and process had to be verified by Fusure.net. It's the open source Fusure Research Consortium and Fusion researcher Richard Hull, who maintained a list of amateur scientists who successfully created their own homemade fusion reactors. Now, this kid belongs in the history books. I'm not sure Guinness is the right place for him, but there you go. Now, this is a 12-year-old who put this together, and then you have a 21-year-old who holds numerous Guinness records for jump rope feats. Said he practiced up to four hours a day, six days a week, until he had the skill and control to skip rope speedily while on skates. So you got the 12-year-old building a nuclear reactor, and here you got a 21-year-old <laughs> skipping rope <laughs> <laughs> on skates six days a week. Until he had the uh, the skill and control to skip rope speedily while on skates. It's a diverse wow. book. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> when we talk about diversity these days, nobody ever takes the Guinness Book into account because it's <laughs> it's very you know it, it's it's certainly all inclusive. <laughs> Holy moly! <laughs> <laughs> well, he says he used to be a discus thrower in high school, but an injury forced him to give up the sport, so he turned to jump rope to keep physically fit. I don't know where the skates came in. Uh, his other records include the most mamba tricks performed while skipping forward in 30 seconds, the most um, reverse double under skips in 30 seconds, the most double under frogs in 30 seconds, and the most skips in one minute with a long rope. Well, congratulations. And then nice. there's this. A woman, um, a Tennessee woman broke a Guinness World Record by hugging a tree in a Chattanooga park for 10 hours and five minutes. That's it. She hugged a tree. Adrian Long spent 10 hours and five minutes with her arms wrapped around a walnut tree in Heritage Park in Chattanooga Brainerd neighborhood to break a previous tree hugging record, which stood for eight hours and 15 minutes. Her friend and owner of um, a beauty salon and spa organized activities for her and spectators included dancing, yoga and guided meditation during the attempt. The attempt was live streamed on the world record tree hug page on Facebook. Uh, her feet raised money for the local Audubon Society, so at least it produced something of value, I suppose. So you've got a 12-year-old nuclear fusion, a 21-year-old, um, 140 times, uh, 47 times in 30 seconds skipping rope on skates, and another woman uh, whose age is not listed. She hugged a tree for 10 hours and five minutes. I hope at least the kids in bold letters and the typeface is just slightly bigger because they don't necessarily belong in the same record book, it seems to me. Well, when the day comes where your tattoos just don't look as good as they used to, there are a couple of options and risks to consider when looking for a removal. Nikki Patterson is not afraid of tattoos. Uh, she is a fan of Eminem, the rap artist. I'm not sure if he's still performing. She's a fan. She's from Scotland, and she set a Guinness record for most tattooed portraits of Eminem. Is there a lot of competition for that one? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't one have probably put her in the book? The 35-year-old woman, she's 35. Did I mention she's 35? Uh, from Aberdeen, Scotland, has just secured the Guinness World Record for having the most tattoos of the same musician with 15 portraits of Eminem across various parts of her body. She goes by Crazy Eminem Lady on Instagram. She also told Fox News, 
Uh, she's gotten a 16th tattoo, or tat, as they say, since her record was confirmed, with plans for five more in the near future. After that, it will depend on how much skin I have left. I think that pretty much says it all. Now, I'm not saying that it is a definite thing that she's probably a disappointment to her parents somewhere. <laughs> but maybe we can infer that a bit. <laughs> well, then there's this. Um, 32 tons of carrots were dumped on a London street. And you would think, oh, it was an accident. It was on its way to a grocery store. They were to a processing plant. No, these 32 tons of carrots were dumped on a London street for an art installation. The mystery of nearly 32 tons. Now think about that. 32 tons of edible carrots dumped onto a street on the campus of a London university was revealed to be an art installation by a student. Londoners took to social media on Wednesday with photos and questions about the giant pile of carrots dumped by a truck onto a road through the University of London campus. The school revealed the pile of carrots is an art installation by Rafael Perez Evans, an art student at the University of Goldsmiths Art College. A spokesperson for the college said the exhibit titled Grounding is part of the Master of Fine Arts degree show. Master of Fine Arts. It runs through the 6th. I guess it's over now. Rafael has arranged for the carrots to be removed by the end of the exhibition run and donated to animals. Uh, says the spokesman. Well, Evans said in a YouTube post that the installation is designed to raise awareness of food waste stemming from the devaluing of crops. So to draw attention to the plight of food waste, you waste 32 tons of carrots dumped on a street in London. Speaking of disappointment, one can only wonder. Let's see. Here's another one. A driver was uh, using the vehicle without insurance and with a suspended license in Kentucky when police officers pulled him over because they um, discovered that the driver's, uh, the driver's license, the, the license plate rather, was hand-drawn. So the uh, driver was pulled over after police officers uh, noticed something was a little off about that particular license plate. The driver had apparently thought he could get away with drawing his own license plate. Apparently he wasn't a master artist. After more investigation, the officers learned that the driver also had no insurance and was driving on a suspended license. Apparently ran out of time to develop or draw those two items. Well, the bizarre interaction took place in Millersburg, a small town in northern Kentucky, about 100 miles east of Louisville. The driver's identity was not released. The Millersburg Police Department offered a pro tip for drivers hoping to get away with drawing their own license plate. Don't forget to draw the registration sticker, which apparently was not done by this uh, artist wannabe. Oh, it's amazing to me what people will try to get away with. They do get away with it half the time. That's the funny part. <laughs> well, only half the time, so that's the good news. True. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll, um, we've got uh, news and traffic at the top of the hour. Uh, but we'll also have a conversation with David Riffle. In fact, it's a lengthier conversation from earlier this week. Uh, David is the author of Mentoring Warriors, Coming alongside young men 18 to 30. Now, James told me earlier, I said 80 to 30. Let me clarify. Coming alongside young men 18 to 30. That's coming up after news and traffic in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest takes on a challenge, the challenge of helping young men navigate through life well. He tackles in the book we're going to be talking about the challenging topic of how to be a mentor 
and how to uh, be mentored. He brings his decades of mentoring practice to the pages of his book, Mentoring Warriors, Coming Alongside Men 18 to 30 Years Old. Now, some of you already know the need for this kind of of a mentoring relationship for young men. Others might need to learn a bit more about it. So David Riffle joins us to talk about just that. David Riffle is the foundation, uh, or I should say founder and executive director of Mentoring Warriors. It's an organization that's dedicated to equipping men to mentor and preparing warriors, men ages to 1830, for life. Having gone through his warrior years, essentially mentorless, God placed him uh, in his heart uh, a heart for warriors to come alongside them as they figure life out. He and his uh, Canadian wife live in Kansas. They have two married children, enjoy spending time at their family cottage in Ontario. And he joins us today to talk about mentoring warriors coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. David Riffle, thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin to talk uh, by talking a bit about um, Mentoring Warriors, the organization that you have founded. My understanding is you are an architect by trade. Tell us a little bit about your work in mentoring. Sure, yeah. I'm an, I like I always say, Chief, I'm an architect by day and a, and a mentor by night. But the reality is mentoring is uh, kind of full circle. The Lord's really done some things over the probably last decades or so in me mentoring young men that the Lord's just placed on my heart through my own experiences in my own mentor or my own warrior days that I uh, saw the need for it. And so what basically happened, to kind of give you an idea of how it started, about 10 years ago, the church we're attending had in their high school ministry an opportunity for adults to sign up to be prayer warriors for high school students. Well, our son Justin was a freshman back then, and the way the the way the, uh, the small groups were organized were by grade and by gender. So there'd be a bunch of guys over at our house playing basketball out in the front front yard and in the, in the driveway. And then he'd come in for a Bible study and small group time. And there were some new, new guys to the church. And so I realized, you know, Hey, I'm going to get to know these guys one way or the other, because they're hanging around my son. So why don't I sign up to be a prayer warrior for a couple of them? So I did. And we started swapping like text, uh, texting back and forth prayer requests and eventually started to meet with them one-on-one, maybe every month or two like that, and then we started doing some things together. And as that happened, what happened over that time, these young guys are now growing up to be 16, 17 years old. They meet up with me, and they start opening up their heart to me about struggles they're going through in cases of pornography or other things that they're struggling with. And all of a sudden, I realized that um, I've become this safe place for them to figure out how are they going to manage through or navigate through life Mm -hmm. and those days that are moving on towards basically young adulthood. So that's how it all kind of got started for me. Um, And so out of all of that, a little kind of a little mix of all that, about four and a half years ago, two weeks after my daughter's uh, wedding, I unexpectedly, of course the Lord knew, but I didn't, I had uh, quadruple heart bypass surgery. So when a guy's in your 50s and you have heart surgery, it really rocks your world. And, and you want to know, Lord, what is my purpose? What, where am I moving forward? So out of that, out of that, coupled with some of my growing up experiences, God really placed in me a hunger. What can I do to start helping raise up men to be mentors and to pour into the next generation of young guys? So that's how the book came about. And that's how Mentoring Warriors as a Ministry came about as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now describe the, the word warriors in the context of mentoring, because some might misunderstand um, what that means when you're talking about young men 18 to 30. Sure. So I like to look at it this way. There's, there's kind of like six, I call them like six stages of manhood. There's the boy. And then when they get to around 13, they turn into what we call the cowboy stage. And then, then roughly around 18 to about 30, they turn into the warrior. And the warrior is the guy that he's trying to figure life out. He's on the frontier. There's a lot of different areas of life that he, um, he's just trying to, trying to make sense of, whether it's in relationships or in faith or in his career, with education, um, even his manhood identity, uh, skills, self-management, life skills. So he's trying to figure those out, and that's the warrior stage because so many of the so many of the choices that he makes in those years, in those 10, 12 years, are going to impact him for the rest of his life. Most men, if they're going to get married, not all of them, but most of them get married sometime during their warrior stage. Um, and then the next stages, when they move into their 30s and 40s, they're basically establishing their role as a husband, as a dad, as a as an employee or an owner of a company, and then eventually they become an older guy, Lord willing, but they're walking with the Lord, and then they become what we call a sage, kind of that guy that has a lot of wisdom and that can pour into the previous generation. So a warrior is that guy. He's he's on he's on the battlefront, and where where will the choices he has he makes? Where will it take him next? Mm, mm. In our in our culture, um, there's some significant challenges. One of the things that you point out is that suicide for young men is three and a half times higher than that of young women. What are some of the challenges that young men in our culture today that seem to be a bit adrift uh, that they face? Well, you know, when uh, I've had a couple of experiences with that. So when I was 17, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. And I can tell you from personal experience, even though I had made a faith commitment to Christ at 12, there, because of my years up to 17, I really hadn't been mentored, really hadn't been guided. I struggle with what is my purpose? How, what is my identity? And so I know a lot of guys that struggle in that area of, of, of thinking of suicide or attempting it. Um, it's a cry for help. Here a couple of years ago, one of the young men that I mentor um, calls me up and says, "Hey, can you?" Or he texts me and he says, "Can you keep a secret?" I said, "Depends on what it is." And he goes, "I have a gun." Well, he was—he uh, had a handgun and he was ready to uh, take his life. And he mm. was reaching out to me. Why was he calling me? Why was he reaching me? Because he's asking for help. Um, here, just uh, about eight, ten months ago, another young man who was around eighteen or nineteen. Um, same thing. He had a rope and he was going to hang himself. He had broken up with his girlfriend and just felt like there was no other options for him. And thankfully the Lord led him through an opportunity where he could realize there was hope. I think what guys, when they're struggling like that, I think it boils down to really two questions that I believe are ultimately God given in every, every man. And I like to say it this way from the time He's a little toddler until the man dies. The two questions that are driving him and everything is, does anybody actually delight in me? Does, mm. anybody, does my life matter? Does anybody actually love me unconditionally? Now, we know that's in Christ, but he's looking for that 
in some sort of relationship and typically in a man who can lead him, whether it's his father or a relative, an uncle, or a man in his church. He's looking for that. Does someone delight in me? And then the second question that they're asking, and I've, I've asked this of myself, do I have what it takes to be a man? This idea of validation. Can I do the next step in my life? And when guys hit those hit those warrior ages, that warrior age, and they're facing those um, frontiers, as I call them, those new challenges, sometimes anxiety gets to them, fear. They start believing lies that uh, they're not good enough or they don't have what it takes. And um, it's when a mentor can step into their lives or they feel safe enough to reach out and say, hey, I, I've got a gun, and I'm asking basically what he's doing by his emotions and actions, asking for help. When a mentor can step in there, the Lord can use that relationship to circumvent what could be otherwise uh, a tragic loss of a, a tragic loss of a young man. So Absolutely. I would say those two things—that idea of delight and of validation—are core to what those young men are searching for. We are talking this afternoon with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. It's an excellent book, very practical to help uh, men to prepare to mentor other younger men between the ages of 18 to 30. One of the things that you say is um, men were not intended to, particularly young men, were not intended to walk through life alone. Um, we tend to think of men as being... Um, independent and, and sort of eschewing this notion of being close to other men. But what do you mean when you say young men were never meant to do life alone? And perhaps that relates to the two questions you just raised before the break about the things that, um, that all men uh, come to at some point in their life. Right. You know, when, we, when God says we're made in his image, he talks about the fact that we're also made for relationship. And God never intended for man, you know, it says when in Genesis, when, when God made Adam, you know, he was very good, but he said, if it's not good, that he's alone. So God's wired it within the Trinity to have a relationship, and he's wired it in us to want to have that vertical relationship with the Lord. But also he's wired us to have what I call horizontal or human relationships. And one of the things that you see throughout Scripture, Old Testament, in the New Testament, is this idea of older generations speaking into the younger generations. Um, it says in, I think it's Judges chapter 2, it's talking about when um, Joshua died. He's like 110 years old. And a few verses later, it says that another generation grew up who did not know the ways of the Lord, nor experienced them. And it says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and so it's one of those things where I believe one of the challenges we have um, with mentoring is we've become so siloed in our generational thinking that we just mm -hmm. think of our own generation, and we've lost that idea that God's put me on this planet. He's put me on this earth for a purpose, and that purpose is to speak into the lives of the next generation. I was, I was at a conference this weekend, a men's conference, and... Uh, we were talking about mentoring warriors, and I, I told those men, I said, the gospel is not going to stop on my watch. 
um, I'm going to be like Paul, who was to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And then in that short little verse, it's talking about four generations. So men need each other. We weren't made to live life alone because the way that men learn is actually in having those iron sharpens iron, man-to-man kind of relationships. I know when I'm held accountable in a godly man-to-man type of relationship like that, I excel in whatever that area of my my life is. And when I don't have that iron sharpens iron, that man who's speaking into my life, um, I start to flounder. And so I, I just really see that's how God's wired us as men, uh, yeah. why we can't go this alone. You mentioned six key areas of life that are based on biblical principles for healthy mentoring relationships. Can you share what those are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the first one is self-management. And it's everything from basically, you know, time management, budgets. Um, One young man um, had gotten out of prison and had been in for four years. He's 23 now and just had no idea how to manage his time or to manage his budget. So I would sit down with him and help him kind of process through. And we have some accountability on how he managed his money and and things like that. So self-management, just guys learning how to prioritize and understand what's important. Um, another one is uh, life skills. And I, a lot of times I like to joke on that one and say, you know, a lot of guys in the warrior stage, they like to go to YouTube. Well, this is how I'm going to change my tire or change my oil or fix the toilet. And YouTube has its place. But we need to learn life skills and the use of our hands. And often that comes through having another guy who's been there, has experience in there, asking older guys into our lives to help them. So life skills is another one. Another big one is education and career. Um, The whole question is, what am I going to be when I grow up? Uh, It always boils down to a lot of times, um, how's God wired you? Um, Give you an example. One of the young men that I mentor uh, was going down the path of mechanical engineering in university because that's what his dad did. Well, he come to find out he hated math. He struggled so bad with it. And through much prayer and conversation with myself and some other men, and also with his advisors, he realized that where his aptitudes were, his skills and interests, was in graphic design. And so he switched majors, and I have watched that young man just soar because he's finally figuring out how God's wired him. And the reality is uh, that young man is the one that created our Mentoring Warriors logo. So that's, that's a good example of just working with the guys on education and career. The fourth one is faith. And this one really is a core to a young man. If they've grown up in a Christian family, most warrior age men, even if they've grown up in a Christian family, will have a tendency to um, not go to church. And they'll walk away from Jesus for a while. And so a lot of times the question is, is this my faith? Is it my parents' faith? What do I really believe? We'll often have conversations about doctrine and what the scriptures say and who is Jesus and what does it mean not just to know Jesus in my head, but to have a living, actual living relationship with him. So faith is very, very important. The fifth one is um, relationships. 
you know, it says in Genesis that uh, God says to man that he shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So there's that part of leaving mom and dad, leaving the support of the home, moving out. And there's also that, that other challenge of meeting a girl. Is this the woman God has for me? I just had lunch today with a young man who is dating a girl, and um, it's that, is this the woman? You know, he's 22 years old, and, and how do I discern? Is this the relationship that God, do I want to, you know, is this the one I want to mm-hmm. marry? Uh, and then the sixth one, the last one, is what I call identity, manhood identity. What does it mean to be a man? You know, sometimes we can joke and say, well, is a man because he's got a gun and he has a plaid shirt? Is that a man? Or, or what is a man? You know, how, what is it? And it's not really about what you wear. It's, it's about your character. And the scriptures teach a lot about that godly character. And the more that a man walks with Christ, the more his character is going to grow. And as a segue to that or a side to that identity is often we talk about sexual purity. That is a big issue with a lot of young men. Um, mm-hmm. they, how do they practice godly self-control? How do they live out practicing holiness as a single man? And then how do they practice that, frankly, when they get married in a godly way? So those are the six areas, self-management, life skills, education, career, faith, relationships, and manhood identity. Those are the big ones we talk about all the time. We're talking about the book Mentoring Warriors. My guest, David Riffle. What does a successful or an unsuccessful mentoring relationship look like? Well, I can tell you on the on the successful side, I'll tell you what that is, and I'll give you maybe a, a tip on how you know if it's going to be an unsuccessful one. On the successful side, I'm going to say there's three things that um, would always need to happen when you get together. One is, in one form or fashion, you guys spend some time in the Word. And that could be anything from a, a formal Bible study to just memorizing Scripture together to challenging each other on how you're going to apply or live out some of God's Word. But always, in one form or fashion or another, get the Word into your conversation. The second one, I say this just always, always, always pray together. Bring not just uh, the day's events, but God, what are some ways that you need to father my heart, and how can my mentor help me in this process? So pray together. And then the third thing that I help think helps with a successful mentoring relationship is go do something fun together. Do something you guys like. Maybe it is shooting guns or going fishing or watching the races or, or going to a basketball game or going camping or whatever it is, but do things to build a commonality. And what happens is when you do that relational aspect of mentoring, it creates a safe environment so that some of the deeper things that in a young man's heart has a safe place where they can be dealt with and the Lord can be brought into it. So those are three things, the word, the prayer, and doing something fun together. On the flip side, I can tell you what does not help is when a mentor enables the problem that the warrior is having whether it's finances, and I can tell you a story about that, or whether it's just in other areas of his life, uh, don't be the person that's enabling the problem. Um, that's not for a healthy, healthy relationship at all. The book is titled Mentoring Warriors. David Riffle is the author. It's an excellent practical resource for those who are looking to mentor young men 18 to 30. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. It's a great resource for those who would like to be useful in helping um, young men who are in this this stage of life that he refers to as the warrior stage uh, to navigate some of the more challenging aspects of life that they will carry with them into their latter years. Um, in your uh, chapter on uh, mentoring principles, you cover four key parts of a successful mentoring relationship. You talked earlier a bit about um, what makes a successful as opposed to an unsuccessful mentoring relationship. But what are these four things um, that are necessary, these principles um, that uh, contribute to a successful mentoring relationship? Sure. You know, the one that I really like to talk about through there is um, the main one is how you build trust in a relationship. And there's a diagram I have in my book that talks about you start off with those relationships as superficial. And really that's that that stage of the relationship where you find out commonalities. You discover things. Oh, you you like, you like the same teams I do, or, you know, you like the same foods or, or you like, you know, the commonalities. And, but, but if that's all the ever, if that's, all the relationship ever gets to, um, it's not going to it's not going to move into what would be a healthy mentoring relationship. So the other principles, the other things that you have to have in there is you have to kind of what I call break the glass floor or the glass ceiling, and then you want to start being more authentic. And sometimes uh, uh, to get a young guy to open up, sometimes the mentor has to model that and just share some of his own brokenness with the young man and say, you know, Hey, I don't know how you're doing it now, but when I was about your age, these are some things that I struggled with. And usually what happens is if the guy knows that you're safe, the warrior knows you're safe, he'll go, you too. Oh, well I do too. And all of a sudden you start becoming real with each other, authentic. Mm-hmm. And then the next stage down is what we call being transparent. Um, I like to say, you know, if, if it's translucent, I can sort of see through the light, but I can't make out the image. But if it's transparent, I can see through. And that's where we start to see what's really going on in the heart of the young man. And so part of that means as a mentor, you have to also be a bit transparent about some of your own struggles. And then that leads to the fourth one, which is being vulnerable. Vulnerable is risky, and it's intended to be risky um, because you're exposing yourself in your heart and the things that God's doing, the things that are struggling with repeat um, maybe addictions that you have. And what happens here, though, is it's a great risk to open up about those. But the reward that can happen in the transformation of a young man. I remember one time sitting with a young guy, 17 years old, and I said, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. How's it going? All of a sudden, he just starts crying. And here we are in a restaurant. So I jump over. I said, what's going on? And he finally opened up to me and said, I am struggling so much with pornography. I don't even know how to get out of this. I will do whatever it takes to get out of this. And I can tell you that it's been six years since that point. He's 23, 24 now. Um, He is a massively, totally different man. But if he had not, and if we had not practiced these principles from superficial, authentic, transparent, and down to vulnerable, um, he probably would still be, and you could talk to him today, he said, I'd probably still be entrenched in those struggles. Um, so those are some really important principles um, that really need to be um, fleshed out um, in a mentoring relationship. 
That's excellent. What are some of the qualifications of a good mentor and how do you become one if, uh, if you aspire to mentor young men? I would say the first one is um, obviously we want you to have a healthy, growing, not perfect, but a healthy, growing relationship with the Lord um, and have a heart of humility and a compassion, a willingness to remember what it was like when you were a warrior age and to realize that, hey, the gospel's not stopping with me. Um, I've been called by God to pay it forward. Um, So I think that's a sign. And, you know, a lot of times we think, well, the mentor has to be an old guy. And yes, there are a lot of older men who have been walking with the Lord. The Lord's walked them through struggles. God's fathered them through many things. They have have a a wealth of wisdom that they can offer some of these younger men. But I also know that I've been pouring into some of these young 20-year-old guys, and um, they are now turning around, and they are now mentoring and investing in some older high school guys. So all I can tell you is you don't have to wait till you're a certain age to start mentoring. Um, I was talking with one young man who's 22. He's, he's now mentoring to a uh, 17-year-old and an 18-year-old. And he's saying, Dave, I am having the most fun. He said, you poured into my life. And he said, now I realize my joy of being able to pour into the next guy. The next generation. So that that is just thrills my heart because here's a 22-year-old guy. He gets it. He gets it. And those are some qualities that help for a guy to be a good mentor. No, yeah. you don't have to know all the answers. No, you don't have to have your life put together. You have to see your life as a mentor on a journey, not perfectly, but increasingly walking with the Lord and willing to say, you know what, been there, done that bought the t-shirt, let me put my arm around you, and we'll walk with you through these next stages of your lives. That's excellent. Now, the book is practical, and as our listeners have been uh, hearing, it really is excellent in helping to prepare someone to become a mentor and um, provide some of the mechanics and, and all of that. In addition to the book, as I mentioned in your introduction, you are the founder and executive director of Mentoring uh, Warriors. And this is an organization that's committed to, to equipping men to mentor and prepare uh, warriors for life. Uh, talk a bit about the organization and how that might supplement efforts uh, by men to mentor those uh, who are younger through this uh, challenging season in life. So Mentoring Warriors, we are, we're, as we are, we're a young organization, we actually kind of got officially as a charitable nonprofit just last year. So one of the things we're actually doing um, here starting in a week from today is what we're going to be doing is our first Mentoring Warriors Boot Camp. And it's going to be an eight-week study going through my book, and we are training men on how to mentor. Some of the men that are coming have never mentored before in their lives. Um, some have mentored in the past, and they they need to be polished up, they said, and kind of kind of kind of get geared back up. And our intention is that by the end of those um, eight weeks, they've learned some of the basics of what it takes to be a mentor, and that the Lord has put at least one young warrior man on their heart that they can then approach, so that hopefully here in about two two and a half months they can start doing that mentoring relationship with that young man. And then my role is going to be helping those guys by basically trying to coach them in their mentoring 
in their mentoring process. So that's one of the things we're doing is we're equipping men by doing some of that training. Um, it's going to start here in Wichita, but our plan is to uh, take that eventually onto our website and then that people eventually be able to get some of that information off of our website as well. And they can go to our website, mentoring-warriors.com, and get a lot of resources there. One of the things on there that would be very helpful, so, you know, if there's a man uh, wants to mentor a young man there in Portland, um, he can go on to the website, and there is a self-assessment tab. And what he would do is have the young man fill that out, and that self-assessment helps figure out in those six key areas we've talked about that young men uh, face and deal with, that they would be able to kind of find it, figure out where does he need some focused mentoring. Maybe it's in the area of self-management, or maybe it's in the area of the state, or in relationships. And that helps the mentor to kind of know, okay, we need to focus in on these areas of his life and kind of start building, building him up in those areas. So those are some good resources that are, that are um, on the website and in the book as well. Excellent. You know, one thing well, I was just going to add a, a little mm-hmm. side comment here, just when I think about Portland, your metro area is, I think, around two and a half million. Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of give you a perspective, how many, how many warrior age men do you think there are just in the Portland metro area? Any oh, I have no idea. Well, just generally in demographics, I've done some research for Portland. And believe it or not, there is almost 190,000 warrior age men. So men that are 18 wow. to 30, married or not married, there there's 100. I mean, that's like some some city, you know, just that alone. Yeah. How many? What What do you think is the percentage of those 190,000 men that have a have a have a have a mentor? It's it's very low. It's around two percent to four percent. You can do the math. I mean, that's maybe hmm. 4,500, you know, not very many guys have a mentor. And it always goes back to what I think Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So don't think that there's a lack of, of oh, there's nobody out there to mentor. There's tons of these young men to mentor, definitely. Yeah. Well, David Riffle, thank you so much for the book, for your ministry, and for taking the time to share with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate being on. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a, You're welcome. really been a pleasure. Mentoring Warriors, David Riffle. Check out the website. Uh, there's great information there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Japanese company has created what it's billing as the world's smallest working Rubik's Cube. It measures a mere 0.39 inches. It weighs less than a tenth of an ounce. The ultra-precision aluminum toy, which uh, comes with its own pedestal, uh, is tiny enough to fit on a penny or a postage stamp. Now, would you be interested in that tiny little Rubik's Cube, James? You know, I, I remember when the original Rubik's Cube came out and how bad I was at it and how I still have not solved it, and I've had one or two since, and I haven't solved those either. Um, the only way I might get it is to keep it as it is, pristine out of the box, and just tell everybody I solved it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it just depends on how my ego is feeling at any given moment, but overall probably not because it's a reminder of futility for me. Mm. Says the uh, developer from the University of Tokyo, we sought to create an exact tiny reproduction of Rubik's Cube, 
Uh, making something that was impossible until now was fun and exciting. Well, the toy maker Mega House began taking orders last week for the product, which is going for a bit more than its larger predecessor. The many cubes are priced at about $1,900. Let me say that again, $1,900. It's about the size of a penny or a postage stamp, $1,900. That one took a second. Yeah, I I heard it, and then it sunk in, and went, are they 19? Oh, wait, there was 100 after that. Yep, yep. No. Well, the Japanese were early and enthusiastic Rubik's Cubers since Mm -hmm. the original six-sided cube debuted back in the 80s, back 1980. Over 14 million have been sold, 4 million within the first eight months alone. Well, Mega House anticipates 500 orders uh, for the doll-sized cubes by Christmas. While the Lilliputian toy was issued to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Rubik's Cube in Japan, its launch during the pandemic has also proven timely, with residents residents spending more time at home. The company reports sales of all Rubik's Cubes up 50% over the same period last year, boosted by online tutorials that demystify the twists and the turns. So you might want to pull one of yours out, find one of those tutorials, and try again. I remember what, when they came out, the first one in our family to have one was my uh, grandmother on my father's side. And uh, she was the type of person, uh, any any type of intellectual I have within me is from her, no question about it, because she's the, she was the type of person that really thought the New York Times crossword was wimpy and easy. <laughs> um, and she had that thing solved in a week. And wow. so, I mean, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, yeah, I, when I couldn't do it, I was just like, and I probably was the only other hope in the entire family to be able to do it. Uh, I did have one cousin who was particularly, um, uh, well, clever in that he took all the stickers off and put them on the right sides and you know, <laughs> solved it that way. Well, I guess that's one way to do it. Well, a woman's rights icon is joining Barbie's squad of leading ladies, Susan B. Anthony. She's going to take doll form for Barbie's, Barbie's Inspiring Women line, which is dedicated to educating young people about history-making females, Mattel said. Well, this celebration of women's rights uh, and this particular icon, who played a pivotal role in the women's suffrage movement, comes at the height of election season as many Americans get ready to hit the polls next week, next month. This was back in uh, September. Anthony led the protest for women's voting rights on the 5th of November, 1872, in Rochester, New York. When she voted in the presidential election and was arrested and convicted for voting illegally. Well, Susan B. Anthony made a defiant move. She voted in the presidential election and was arrested at her home in Rochester, New York. This bold act, coupled with Susan's determined spirit, helped pave the way for passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Now, this was 1872, by the way, um, which prevented a woman from being denied the right to vote on the basis of sex. Mattel wrote in a product description for the Susan B. Anthony doll. Now, this clearly is for uh, collectors. It's not a doll you'd necessarily play with, but the Susan B. Anthony Barbie features the leading lady in a floor-length black dress with lace at the sleeves and bodice. She's wearing spectacles and a lace collar fastened with a cameo brooch. Barbie-inspired women doll series also features civil rights activist Rosa Parks and American jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. So do you think your little girl would be interested in these... um, iconic women in the form of Barbie? You know, I, I mean, obviously, um, you know, you want to teach your you know, your daughter about, you know, classic, you know, um, role models and whatnot. And, uh, 
the one thing I've discovered is the the one Barbie that we've given her so far. She wanted one, and we got her the one from Toy Story. At least uh, we knew it came modestly dressed, etc. Um, uh-huh. And um, it, it, it's kind of trashed. So, <laughs> so it's kind of one of these these specialty novelty uh, Barbie dolls, uh, especially because they come with a slightly higher price tag than everyday Barbie, so to speak. And no, I'm not, I don't think that's an actual Barbie doll. Everyday Barbie, now available from Mattel. <laughs> uh, but uh, the uh, I, I think we're holding off on stuff like that uh, until she's older and can not only appreciate the doll itself, but also the story behind the doll. Yeah, and take good care of it. Yep. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you, James Blind, our producer, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.